The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes. Join me every Monday for a new episode of my podcast, Recovering from Reality. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, I'm here to deliver intimate conversations and expert insights to empower you on the road towards authentic wellness. So are you ready to recover from reality? Hey, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections in November. Make sure to text the word voter to 26797 right now to check your registration and to receive your polling location and reminders for all local, state and federal elections in the future. Thank you. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I'm Andana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends and we're constantly sending each other stories of people who completely blow our minds. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research And we cannot wait to present you with our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. Each episode, we will meet one of these incredible accidental activists and learn all about their journeys. This week, we speak with the artist, organizer, educator, and author, Patrice Cullors. Patrice is the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network and founder of grassroots LA-based organization, Dignity and Power Now, as well as the New York Times bestselling author of When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. For the last 20 years, Colors has been on the front lines of criminal justice reform and led Reform LA Jail's Yes on R campaign a ballot initiative that passed by a 71% landslide victory in March 2020. Patrice's work to decarcerate and affirm human dignity continues as she joins the Justice Collaborative team as a senior advisor. This episode was recorded in February. In the months since, we've seen mass protests across the country and around the world in support of Black Lives Matter. The death of George Floyd, a 46-year-old Black man who was killed on May 25th after a white police officer kneeled on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds during an arrest, has left Patrice and all of us around the world devastated. And it is, as Patrice recently called in an interview with Newsweek, a watershed moment. Protesters have demanded we address police brutality and systemic racism. And Patrice is one of the leaders calling to defund the police. As she said in the interview, enough is enough. It's time we defund law enforcement and start reinvesting into communities. And the first step, she said, is to reimagine public safety by significantly reducing funding to law enforcement bodies and redirecting that money into initiatives directly serving communities, including education, healthcare, and community programming. Patrice is an incredible activist and visionary, and her story is so powerful. It will blow you away. And now, it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the brilliant dissenter, Patrice Cullors, the freedom fighter. 
my gosh. You're, having me. you're here. This is amazing. <laughs> Thank uh, you for doing this. Of course. Of we, course. you know, we really started this podcast so we could meet our heroes mm-hmm. and you know, inspire people. Thank Anyone you. who is listening and feels like I want to change that. So you were on our very top of our <laughs> list of people that we wanted to talk to because you're so you. damn inspiring. Oh, thank you. And powerful. That means a lot to me. <laughs> okay. So we'll, let's dive in. Yeah. You grew up in Pacoma? In Pacoima. Pacoima. Mm-hmm. You have a sister, two brothers. When you were nine, you saw your brothers slammed into a wall by police officers. Mm-hmm. How did that shape you? I mean... I grew up really in a neighborhood that was over-policed and that was addicted to over-incarceration. And in that experience in the San Fernando Valley, which is just right over the hill, mm-hmm. I realized that some areas were going to have a lot of police and some weren't. And it really depended on the class of the community. It really, And when I say class, I mean, you know, the socioeconomic income of that community, and Mm -hmm. it really depended on the race. And I just thought it was normal to see over-policing in my neighborhood. I thought it was normal to see police harassment. And when I was labeled as gifted and and sent to go to mostly white schools in Sherman Oaks, what ended up happening was I realized, like, whoa, all these folks are doing the same exact thing that we're doing in our neighborhood, except they're not being policed for it. They're smoking weed. Right. They are hanging out with more than five friends, but there are no police officers throwing us up against walls. Um, there's no police officers in sight, to be honest with you. And so that stark difference really shaped how I would eventually become, you know, an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, has so much to do with what I witnessed as a child. And so when you saw that structure, where I guess where you lived, you knew. That it was not okay from a young age. I felt it. Yeah. I felt like it wasn't okay. Like, I felt like children don't deserve to be treated like this. I don't think people realize that in working class communities, most children are with their older siblings, Mm -hmm. right? And so Mm -hmm. we're being taken care of by our older siblings. And so there's really not many adults around. And the only adults I remember as a child when I would go home were the police. So it was police up against children. Wow, wow. And I, I don't think people understand that if you don't grow up in it. And I think even growing up in it, you don't have that reflection. I've spent a lot of time reflecting on the war on gangs and the war on drugs and over-policing. And I think growing up in it, I was always so rageful. And I, I knew that my family deserved so much more. Did your siblings give you a narrative around what was happening? No, we were just kids, you know? We were just kids being, for the most part, children, Mm -hmm. um, but also having to bear a responsibility that children shouldn't have to bear. Right. And so there was no analysis. There was, we loved each other a lot. We were a really close family. And the four of us, you know, my younger sister and my two older brothers, we rarely fought. It was like, we understood that there was a lot at stake and that my mother was working all the time to take care of us. And she was a single mom. And so mm-hmm. I think we really tried to keep the household together, especially my older brother, Paul. You left home at 16? hmm How did you end up at 18 being the, 
the spokesperson for the bus riders union. How did that happen? <laughs> I left home at 16 for a lot of different reasons. I feel like I was becoming politicized. I had come out at 15 and the environment in my home just wasn't safe for me. And so I was homeless. I was a group of us kids that were, you know, living in cars, living at other people's houses. And I spent that last year of high school not realizing I was homeless. I was just sort of living my life and trying to get through high school. But I knew that I wanted to do something more. A lot of people in my high school were being tracked to go to college. Right. I wasn't interested in college at that point. I was interested in furthering my education, but not in an academic setting. And I was a youth leader at a camp, a social justice camp, mm. called the National Conference for Community and Justice. And in that camp, they brought a bunch of people, like local leaders, to come talk to young people about, like, here are career options, here's right. community service options. And out of the four people who came, I think one was, like, the library and, like, a few other folks, the group that stood out the most was the Bus Riders Union because— they were talking about going after local government. Mm. And while I didn't know that's what I wanted to do, the way they talked about racism and sexism, it was a very queer organization, very black and brown, lots of women. And I was like, oh, I think I found like one of my homes. And it, I would stay there for about 11 years. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. As a member of the organization, ended up on the highest sort of like decision-making body of the organization. And then I came on and staffed the organization, started a lot of new projects. But it was a place where I really was trained into the leader that I would become. And when did you incorporate art? All the time. I was always doing some sort of creative artistic practice. And when I was 12 years old, my great-grandmother, who I was raised with until I was about 21, when she passed, I would like put on these fashion shows, like me and my sister, like organize the fashion shows for her. And she would always say, we need to put you in dance. She actually never put me in dance, but she planted a seed. Mm. And so when I was, you know, I went to middle school, I went to performing arts middle school. So I was introduced yeah. to ballet and jazz. And then I didn't end up going to a performing arts high school, I ended up going to a humanities magnet. But I was like, I need to dance. Like, I, I knew it in my body. There was no Google then, so I went in the Yellow Pages, <laughs> and I looked up the local dance studio, and I called all of them to see if they'd give me a scholarship. Called them. I was about 14 years old. And one woman named Noreen Xavier at the West Coast Dance Theater in Northridge said, yes, come by. So I called my dad, who was living at the time, and I, I said, hey, I think I got a scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> this is very Patrice personality. I think I got a scholarship. Can you take me to this dance studio? And he was like, what? Like, <laughs> how did you even know to do that? Um, and he took me to the studio and I and I was there until I graduated from high school. So art was always like in my practice. And when I started to organize, one of the first things that the Best Writers Union did, some of the leadership is they were like, we see that you really love art. Let's do like a, a poetry night, bring your friends. And mm. and it was so special and it was so important. And one of the first places I feel like I also started to process what was happening to my brother, Monty, mm -hmm. um, and was able to use art. And I'm, I just had a show at the Broad a couple days ago, and that piece was dedicated to him and, and also dedicated to Los Angeles. 
But I recognizing just in this conversation that I've always used art as a way to heal and as a platform to amplify, mm-hmm. and especially in relationship to my brother. Do you mind sharing your brother's experience? No, I, I don't. I mean, at this point, I feel like it's our family's experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, so many people in Los Angeles experience. You know, my brother has schizoaffective disorder. He's one of many in the country, but also in this county. And in so many ways was neglected, you know, yeah. neglected mm-hmm. because of our poor infrastructure, neglected because we have a collective and cultural understanding that severe mental illness is scary and neglected because we were not taught. I was not taught. My mom's not taught about mental illness. Right. right. We didn't have that kind of information or that kind of education. So there was no early intervention for my brother, although he really did need early intervention. And at 19 years old, he was picked up by the police and incarcerated. And in that incarceration, he was brutally beaten uh, by the sheriff's department. Oh, my God. And that's actually when we also found out that he had severe mental illness. And what I would come to learn in, in the work that I've been doing in the last decade is that many people— At this point, there's about 5,500 people on some form of psychotropic drugs inside the county jails, making the L.A. County jails the largest mental health facility in the country. And with that, the sheriff's department, who's been a a history of corruption, Mm -hmm. a history of violence against some of the most vulnerable people like my brother inside those jails. So I assume that that is what helped focus much of your activism in, in trying to have transformative justice, healing justice, and making sure that people who are mentally ill or homeless or addicted to drugs are taken out of prisons. Absolutely. I think for me, I understand that we've really spent the last 30 to 40 years solely investing in jails and incarceration and policing as a way to deal with social ills. If you really take a look at who's being arrested, if you take a look at who's sitting inside jails and prisons, largely drug dependent, largely mentally ill, largely chronically homeless. Inside our women's jail, up to 90% of those women are nonviolent offenders, meaning that they should actually be home. They should Mm. have probably received a community-based treatment bed. They should have received early intervention. And when women are sent to jails and prisons, it often means that their mothers um, they're, yeah. they're losing their children. Yeah, We talk a lot about family separation when we talk about the immigrant community and documented community. And we forget that family separation has been happening in this country in the form of imprisoning wow. women and taking them away from their children. So there's a long history of, unfortunately, the ways in which we've relied on policing and prisons as the sole way to deal with social ills, when in fact, there's so many other ways to get people what they need. Can you share with us what July... 13th, 2013 was like for you? Sure. It was probably one of the most important days of my life. It was the day that George Zimmerman was acquitted of Trayvon Martin's murder, but it was also the day that Black Lives Matter was birthed. And on that day, I just remember feeling like I need an answer. Yeah. I need something more. I need a sign from the goddess, from God, from the universe that this is not going to be the end of the story, that George Zimmerman is not going to have the period to this story. I was also, in such irony, visiting one of my mentees who had just received a 10-year sentence 
for something that sounds severe, but actually nobody was harmed. So I'm sitting in, a, in this prison town, visiting this 18-year-old who's about to spend the next seven years of his life in prison, and then listening to a jury say that a man who murdered a child gets to go home free. I mean, it And was, just not guilty, not guilty, exactly, not guilty, yeah. just over and over. That was so horrifying. Exactly, literally. It was just like, I know this country is racist, but how truly racist and painful, you know, I think it was like this collective pain that Black people felt in particular and a collective pain that our allies felt that, wow, we're still here in 2013, we're still here. And at the same time, I am so grateful that we millennials in particular sort of saw it as an opportunity to move into action. Yeah. And so how did Black Lives Matter start? In so many ways, you know, I think Black Lives Matter is a culmination of, of many things. We're the generation that has been completely divested from. We're the generation mostly of poor Black folks who only received policing, only received incarceration. We can remember our parents doing well and then drug dependence happening and then a crackdown in our neighborhoods by the police, right? And so I think it's important that people sort of understand what was happening to a bunch of us as children and what we were witnessing and seeing. And so when George Zimmerman is acquitted, it's sort of a culmination of like tragedy that calls us to action. And Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, actually wrote a love note on Facebook to Black folks and then said, you know, ended it with Black Lives Matter. And then I put a hashtag in front of that and very quickly was organizing, Alicia, let's do something about this. Let's create this. Um, Let's build something out. And then Opal Tometi, a couple days later, called Alicia and said, hey, I, I saw you're working on this Black Lives Matter thing. I want to be involved. So the three of us really developed an infrastructure. And at first it was an online platform. It was a place where we can have a conversation about anti-Black racism. We can use a hashtag to have those conversations. We wanted it to go viral. And then obviously Mike Brown happened. Right. And we wanted to take Black Lives Matter off of being an online, you know, Twitter hashtag and into a real life movement. Something you said just gutted me. You said, for Black folks, protest is grieving. So folks go out, they hold a vigil, they hold a protest, and instead of receiving care, instead of receiving dignity, instead of receiving love, they're met with rubber bullets. They're met with tear gas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was Ferguson. It was so bizarre to witness for those first 48 hours on Twitter, because that's how we got our information from Ferguson, right? Right, It wasn't actually news media that was reporting on Ferguson. Those first viral tweets came directly from the people. And so I remember watching Twitter blow up. Like, there's a young boy. He was killed by the police. He's laying in the heat on the concrete, bleeding out. And they left him there for four and a half hours. And I remember watching, like, when are they going to pick him up? Like, what's It was just like watching this live tragedy. And... Feeling like, okay, we have to do something. We have to do something. Do I go down there? Like, I remember asking friends, like, should we go down there? Should we go that now? Okay, it's not our neighborhood. But it just felt so familiar. Yeah. And and then later on, you know, they finally pick up the body. And then people went to go have a vigil at the place where he died. Because that's what you do naturally. Yeah. You grieve the person you love. And in that vigil, it was not a protest. We have to remember. 
it was a place for Black folks to grieve Mike Brown's death and the treatment that they just had received. And they were met with tanks. They were met with full-on tanks and rubber bullets and tear gas. And I remember seeing those first sort of like cannons of tear gas being thrown into the community and thinking, this is our uprising. This is, there's every generation I think has some rebellion. And, yeah. and this was ours. And so we did decide to go down there. 600 of us, We Darnell Moore and I, who lives here now, but is from Jersey and lived in New York for a long time, we actually organized a ride, a Black Lives Matter ride mm-hmm. to Ferguson. And it was literally 10 days after Mike Brown's death. And we had two goals. It was be present for the people, let them know yeah. that we are we have their backs, mm-hmm. and then go home and organize. And that's exactly what we did. And so. why do you think that BLM became a global movement for all, all marginalized people? I think because Black folks everywhere are experiencing and have historically experienced significant levels of racism. And it was really obvious that when we're, we're calling for Black lives, you know, when you go across the world, Black people and non-Black people look to Black Americans as a sort of center point around freedom fighting. They have historically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's been lots of exchanges between Black Americans and other Black folks across the world to think and strategize around how we have global freedom. And so I think that was resonated so deeply for Black people in Canada and the United Kingdom, for Black folks in Haiti, for Black people in South Africa. Everywhere that I've gone, Black people have been so grateful for Black Lives Matter. It has created a synergy around what's possible when it comes to the conversation and fighting anti-Black racism. And it's totally inclusive. It's not cis, heterosexual, That's exactly male, right. yeah, African-American. I think, I think in so many ways, for so long, Black women have always led movements mm-hmm. yeah. um, and just not received the recognition. And mm-hmm. this one, there was no way you could turn away from the leadership. Mm-hmm. It was all women. And it was mostly queer. And it was a Black trans woman showing up mm-hmm. and us saying, you know, we are here for our entire community. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to sort of silo our community. We don't see value in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not strategic to silo our community. And so that became a resounding conversation. And also, I think it brought a lot of us together. I remember seeing hashtag BLM and learning about it and feeling like, yes, yes, this is what is required in this moment. And then I remember it seemed like right away there being white lives matter. hmm And all lives matter. All lives lives matter. matter. Blue lives Mm -hmm. matter. And I, it just made me so angry. Mm. So I can't even imagine how you felt. And what I didn't understand was the instant defensiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you process that? I think up until that point, I hadn't had a campaign that had gone global. You know, I'd been working in um, community organizing for a decade. And the work that I did was very hyper-local. I knew a lot of people in the work. You know, the work that I was doing with with Dignity and Power Now was focused on the the sheriff's department. But I think because Blackness has always been a controversial topic in this country, the minute we proclaimed that statement, Black Lives Matter, really rattled 
the idea of what whiteness is. So mm-hmm. if Black Lives Matter, what does that mean about everybody else, right. right? And why do you get to say it? Why can't we say it? And I think each group had their own kind of response mm-hmm. to it. And some people were really quick to become allies. Mm-hmm. And some people were not. And some Black folks were like, we shouldn't be saying that. And so I think it has to do with living in a country that has been in denial on purpose about white supremacy and its construct and racism and its construct. And that's never had an honest conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a, we don't have a culturally honest conversation about racism in this country. And so because of that, once the public starts to be challenged with new ideas around racism, I think it really rattles people. And I'm glad about it. I'm glad. I think we changed the world and we really challenged the world. And I think that was really important. And I think, you know, for the chapters who've continued to be Black Lives Matter chapters, continue to play that role in their communities. So then Trump wins. (laughs) 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 Which is just like a... Its own thing. Yeah. But how does that affect, I guess, it what your goals everything. and your outlook on how to move forward? So when 45 gets elected, very quickly— oh, I love you for doing that. <laughs> I hate saying his name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When 45 gets elected, very quickly, I recognize that, okay, not the same national government. There's going to be a significant amount of backlash on BLM— but more importantly, it makes me reassess what was most urgent. And that reassessment turned into local politics. And, you know, I spent my entire organizing career at the local level. Then I was shot into sort of national leadership. I spent four years pretty much on the road, talking, supporting, getting people to rally around Black Lives Matter and realized it's time to go back home. It's time to focus on Los Angeles County because there's this conversation, I think, that we need to have. And we saw it with the primaries, right? We saw it with Florida. We saw it with Georgia. People started to realize, oh, shoot, okay, we might not be able to impact the president right now, but we can impact our local government. Mm -hmm. And we got to see how the president related to local government, Mm -hmm. right? The president hates California. Right. It's the resistance state. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles County is supposed to be one of the most progressive. So how do we hold those elected officials to task, given that we're literally up against a white supremacist? Mm -hmm. And so I found that there was an opportunity to restate the role of Los Angeles in this larger conversation about resistance and started to do work to challenge the building of two jails. We had already been doing that work for a decade, but did a refocus of, okay, We have a new national government. How do we use that energy to talk about what's happening at the local level? And so I started Justice LA. I started Reform LA Jails, which is yes on R. It's a ballot measure that will be on the March 3rd, 2020 ballot. I just literally voted on it on my vote by mail ballot today. Yeah. I've never been so excited to vote for my (laughs) entire life. Um, And realized that at the end of the day, my work always goes back to what I experienced in my childhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that I am desperately trying to build a Los Angeles where a little Black girl child does not have to go through what I went through, where a little Black boy doesn't have to go through what Monty went through, mm-hmm. that a mother like my mother gets to see her children in their full dignity. I do not know how it feels to watch a child be gobbled up by an institution 
and not be able to save them. And so I came back home and I've been doing that work. And it's been so fulfilling as the national government is melting down Mm -hmm. to be building a strong county. Because at the end of the day, a strong county makes a strong state. A strong state makes a strong nation. Mm -hmm. And we really have to be, I think, immersed in local politics right now. Could not agree with you more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think one of our goals is to help educate people on things that they don't understand. Because I think people don't participate in things because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. They don't want to offend somebody. They don't want to look stupid. Or they just, they don't really understand the actual problem. So do you mind just helping people understand the problem with the prison system? Mm -hmm. Like, why does it fundamentally, (laughs) you know, I, I just think people don't, it's so hard from the relative outside yeah. to really understand if you've not experienced Absolutely. It, what the problem is. There's a number of things. I think number one, we have to remember that prisons and police and jailing as we know it has not always existed. We live in a country that has severe amnesia. It forgets what it used to be. Yeah. It forgets what is possible. And what is happening right now is touted as this is what has always been, and that's the only way to be. I grew up in the 80s and 90s where it was cool to lock children up. It was acceptable to give them life in prison, to charge them as adults. It was acceptable to be a district attorney, and your entire career is about how many people you could send to prison, the highest sentences you can give them. I grew up during the 80s and 90s where the police, both LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Department were being trained to brutalize community members. I mean, this is the LA that we grew up in. And so I think part of the work is sort of recognizing where we've been Mm -hmm. and having an honest confrontation with what we've created. In the 70s, there were 700,000 people who were incarcerated. By the time we got to 2012, there was 2.3 million people. One million of those people being Black people. And so that is not an accident. (laughs) Those numbers are not accidental numbers. That was a planned campaign to create a crisis so that people felt like we had to incarcerate people in the droves. And so I think what we're in right now is a new understanding. I think if you talk to an average person, especially here in the state of California, they'll tell you, yeah, you know, I don't really agree with incarceration. You know, most people have read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander Most people are having a new kind of conversation about incarceration, but I think we have to kind of start where we've been. And then from there, I think we have to have another conversation. Well, who's in the jails, right? So if if we really want to talk about the issue, well, let's take a moment to look at who's living inside of the jails and prisons. I said it earlier, but the majority of people inside jails and prisons are there because they're drug dependents. They're there because of severe mental illness. They're there because of chronic homelessness. And this isn't special to Los Angeles. If you go to every single county across this country, that's what you're going to see. I was just in Bakersfield yesterday doing all-day event for Black History Month, and they're dealing with very similar issues. It's only 800,000 people in the county. It's not 10 million people, but it's the same type of issue. So the answer, what do we do then, right? If this is a crisis, if it's a local crisis, a national crisis, what do we do? And it's easy. We invest into alternatives to incarceration. Mm -hmm. We spend the next 30 years, like we spend the last 30 years, divesting out of 
incarcerating whole communities, and actually investing in them. Things like getting people access to jobs, getting people access to green space, access to healthy food, access to adequate public education. Mm -hmm. There are very simple fixes. My brother needed early intervention. Mm -hmm. He did not receive that. Well, he did. His early intervention was jailing and incarceration. He needed early intervention around having adequate mental health care. Mm -hmm. And so we have the opportunity in Los Angeles County. We are in a new cultural moment. We have County Board of Supervisors who are actually listening to us. Mm. We have thousands of people who've joined the local movement to fight for alternatives to incarceration. And we stopped the two jail plans. That's incredible. (laughs) Amazing. And they said we couldn't. They said we wouldn't. And we did. Can I ask a dumb question? I guess there's no dumb question. question. (laughs) But like that huge spike in incarceration, is that because there's a profit model? Is it because they don't value human life? Is it because it's easier than doing the work that you're suggesting? It's It's, all of it. It's just all of it. It's because we live in a country that preys on the most vulnerable. Because it's not a million white people in yes. jail and prison. Mm-hmm. We have to think about who's in jail and prison. It's the people who are most vulnerable, people who don't have Poor. resources for an attorney, people who don't know their rights, yeah. people who take a plea deal because they don't want a 35-to-life sentence. Richard Edmond, who's my mentee, was facing multiple life sentences. So he took a 10-year sentence for his first ever crime. Wow. And so this is what we've created. And then we created a model that if you're a district attorney and you're tough on crime— you'll get reelected. Yeah. Right? So that cycle was really important for us to name. And we finally started to have this conversation in 2016. But this wasn't just the Republican Party. This was all parties. This was the Democratic Party. Yeah. This is the Bill Clinton crime bill. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a deep investment in criminalization. You said that you believe the people closest to the pain should be the ones that are trying to change those systems, which we both thought was so, so profound. Why do you believe that? Because, one, we know what needs to get done. Yeah. Um, It seems so obvious when you say it, right? I know, it it, does. But it's not, because it's not what we've seen in the past. Absolutely. And then when you say it, you're like, well, duh. But, you know, it's it's this really new perspective on— on this and having leaders like you who can show a new way. Yeah. Yeah, I think we also deserve to be able to, this is healing work for us, Mm -hmm. you know. When you've been harmed by something and you get to reclaim that harm, you get to reclaim the kind of space you take up in the world. I had been voting since I was 18. It was really important for me. I didn't get to vote against Bush. And so when I turned 18, I was like, I am voting. Um, (laughs) But I have never been so excited about election until this election because I helped put something on the ballot. Yeah. I, I, someone who grew up in a small neighborhood that was riddled with violence by the police, that was was riddled with hopelessness, 25 years later, I get to put something on the ballot that's directly related to my family experience. That's powerful. And that has so much meaning. So the work is not just about empowering people, but it's about building the power of people who've been most directly harmed. Mm -hmm. The system benefits when we don't stand up for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when we decide that we're reclaiming our story, it really does create new change. How can we be better allies? It's a great question. I think opening up the space like this is so important and amplifying the stories of people that are on the front lines, Mm -hmm. you know, doing that sort of daily grind of making this place a better place. I think 
sharing with your own networks, showing up, listening. There's nothing like having someone just listen, listen to the experiences of people. Mm -hmm. And you might not have the same experience, but it goes a long way. I think the other way people can be allies is like, know what's happening in your community, know what's happening in your county. So many people may not have had a loved one inside prison or jail, but it doesn't mean you don't have to be ignorant about the issue. Like Mm -hmm. this is an opportunity to understand what's happening. And almost all of us have someone who has some sort of mental illness. Check up on your loved one. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to sort of say that's not my issue. That's too hard to work on. But I think it's really important that we stay connected to our loved ones because the moment we disconnect from them, they are taken away by something else. Do we think we can just get one minute of you explaining dignity and power now and just that what that is? We have 400 questions that we're not going to ask you, obviously. Yes. So Dignity and Power Now is a local grassroots organization that I started in 2012 with a few friends of mine. Our goal was to get permanent civilian oversight of the sheriff's department and also to stop the two $3.5 billion jails that were going to be built. We met our goals, mm-hmm. and so we have new goals. I'm the board chair now of the organization. I'm no longer running the day-to-day of the organization. My work is now primarily living inside of the Yes on Our campaign. And that is Justice LA and Reform LA Jails. Is this all part of the same organization or those are separate? Good question. Dignity and Power Now is the anchor organization for Justice LA. Got it. And Reform LA Jails is a ballot committee separate Got it. from okay. Justice LA. Okay. Mm-hmm. I know so many laws. Uh, <laughs> you are You're amazing. Warrior. And we didn't even get to like your 50 degrees and your art shows and like, what are we doing with our lives? We're doing nothing. We've accomplished nothing. Just have me back um, to talk about my art. So. I just love this, this you are just, you. they're so multifaceted and you're also like fun and you're cool and you like dress super well. I'm just like, I don't even understand. It is so crazy. Thank you for being Thank such an inspiration. So Thank much. you. This was awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in. And please join us next week as we speak with one of our best friends, the brilliant and hilarious Allie Wentworth, the mental health champion. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.